We are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 today, and we're going to be reading about David and the Ark of God. But first I'm going to read Numbers 4, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all of the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. The Levites were to carry certain objects within the sanctuary. And we see two points being made, that the Levites were to do it and they were to carry it. And they definitely were not supposed to touch the objects, lest they die. So, here we go in Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. Previously before this in the chapters, David has been winning battles, having major victories for Israel. David would pray. The Lord would answer his prayer and tell him what to do. And David did it and they won. David would pray, the Lord would answer, that David would do what he was told, and they won. This was very repetitious. It definitely shows that David knew how to set forth his things. Before he did something, he prayed, the Lord responded, and he did what he was told. In the beginning of chapter 6, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, And they went with them to go get the Ark of God who was at Abinadab's house. And they were going to be bringing this house, this house, this Ark to the city of David. Not saying it wasn't a good thing. The Ark of God was coming home. I mean, this is what's going through David's mind. The Ark of God is coming home. But the fact that we don't see David praying about this, I think the Ark of God was supposed to be at Abinadab's house for 30 years. It's it's been there for 30 years. Since we don't see David praying, I wouldn't read a lot into it. But later on in this chapter, it might explain a lot. We see... Abinadab's sons are carrying the ark on a new cart. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see Abinadab's son, Eleazar, given charge of the ark. 
he, he was he would have been the Levite to to keep it. And now we have Uzzah and Ahio, two more of Abinadab's sons, given charge of the ark to transport it. There are a few questions that I want to ask. David probably gave this command. Go get the ark, bring it to the city of David. Probably told him to put it on a new cart, one that was purified, cleansed. I, I mean, this was a celebration. This was a day to behold. The ark of God was coming home. David had 30,000 of his soldiers accompanying this ark. This was a great day. But we know that David knew what the Old Testament said. And yet we see him giving the command and the ark of God being placed on a cart. David definitely knew this. This wouldn't have been a surprise for him. Even if he didn't give the command to put the ark of God on the cart, he would have known that it was on the cart. And yet he said nothing. Even though in Numbers 4.15 it says Levites carry these things, David said nothing. We also probably can assume that this was a charge, a command given by David. People knew about it. I mean, the word would have spread. This would have been a grand occasion for everybody to come see. And we don't see any of them speaking up, saying, wait, in Numbers 4.15, it says Levites are to carry this and to not touch it. But we don't see any of Israel speaking up. And we don't even see the elders, which is the most disturbing. The, the Levites, Ahio and Uzzah, they would have known what Numbers said, yet they said nothing. All of the elders of Israel would have known the rules, the guidelines. That was their job. Their job was to learn the book of God and to teach it to their children and the youth to educate them in the ways of the Lord. And we see nobody speaking up. We see nobody taking charge, taking command and saying, no, I'm sorry, this, this isn't right. You, you need to fix this. No, in verse 5 of chapter 6, we see, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. We do know where all of Israel was. They were making merry before the Lord. Which is unfortunate. Because I imagine this whole great parade, this beautiful spectacle of the heart of the Ark of God being brought to the city of David. Everybody is rejoicing, making merry. But none of this leading up to it has gone right. We see Israel ignorant and all of the house of Israel making merry before the Lord in their sin. They were proud that the ark of God was coming. They just didn't care how it got here. They didn't care about the rules. They just wanted it here. And when, in verse 6, 
And when they had come to the threshing floor of Macon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Who wouldn't have done that? I mean, this is really a heart issue. You see the ark of God falling, who wouldn't put out your hand to catch it? That's the way we all feel. And we instantly threw out what we knew to be true, ignorant or not, we instantly threw that away to go with what we felt to be right. Uzzah being a Levite, he would have had the first five books memorized. So much so that he probably would have put people to shame. Being given charge of the Ark of God, he definitely would have made people look bad. I mean, that's what Levites were. They were the priests. They were the messengers of God. And he receives it, just putting out his hand to catch the Ark. Boom, dead. In verse 8 is the most natural response there can possibly be. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perizuzah to this day. God reigned on His parade. I mean... He had all of his soldiers, all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord in this beautiful parade and God struck down the man carrying the ark. Well, overlooking the carrying of the ark. To be honest, whenever I read specifically verse 3 where it says and it's being carried on a new cart and the ox were pulling it, and then I read the rest of these sentences going down. I can't help but want to think that if you wanted an allegory, a perfect comparison, the ox would have been a donkey. Because all of Israel were ignorant before the Lord, making merry before the Lord, and then whenever the sin was revealed, we get mad at God. David was angry with the Lord, because he kept his promise of verse Numbers 4.15. He said you would die if you touched it. And David got angry. And in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He has been praying, the Lord has been answering, he's been doing, and they've been winning battles against odds that should not have went their way. These were victorious battles the Lord had given him. How could he not have feared the Lord until he saw someone get struck down for touching the ark? Because he really must have thought he was invincible. He, was, he wasn't just simply an Israelite. He was the king. Ah, he he was leading God's chosen people. He must have been really high on that horse. I, who wouldn't be? I mean, if I prayed to God and got an answer that I was going to win this great battle, all I had to do was this, and I did it and I won, 
everybody would have been on that pedestal. Everybody would have been feeling great about themselves, felt warm inside that God was answering their prayers so ten times as much as you would have thought. And then in verse 9, we see David fearing the Lord that day and stating, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Who am I? Verse 10, So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. We see David getting angry with the Lord in the previous verse. Then after that we see him stating, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And we see the ark of the Lord not being touched for three months. Now I'm not going to say David was in a humility state for those three months, but that really would have been a humiliating situation. Because you have... All of Israel gathered for this grand occasion. And then you see God reigning on it. Just, no, you didn't do what I told you. And I'm really glad that they were able to look back and write this story because it says the ark of the Lord remained there three months. We, we see a bigger picture. We don't just see a simple instance like... David was angry with the Lord. Humility. This lasted a continuous three months, which was a combination of David being angry with the Lord and being in a humble state by the Lord because he wasn't all of what he thought he was. Now in verse 12, And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. In verse 12, it says that, okay, we finally got the ark again and we're bringing it to the city of David and everybody's rejoicing. This rejoicing, this external showing of rejoicing would have been no different than the first time, which makes this extremely scary because our rejoicing and our ignorance is the same as our rejoicing in our God externally. It looks the same. It is very scary. Because when we have this feeling of, well, I feel like this must be right. I mean, Uzzah must have thought that. This must be right for me to catch the ark and not let it fall. I mean, his motives would have been as good as anyone's. And then we see David and all of Israel rejoicing in their sin. And now we see David and all of Israel rejoicing... In this righteousness, because in verse 13 it states, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. First question that needs to be asked was it the same ox that stumbled? 
Just saying. <laughs> and a fattened animal. No, at the beginning of verse 13, it says, when those who bore the ark of the Lord, we see something going right. We see someone, perhaps David, took those three months and just furloughed and just started rereading what he ought to have known. Because in verse 9 it says, those who bore the ark. We see Israel doing what the Lord commands. And we see much rejoicing. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. We see righteousness. We see we see David being victorious. We see David doing what he was told. We see the Lord being pleased. So much so that whenever it says David danced before the Lord with all his might, I'm not going to talk about it, but it's whenever he's tried to be rebuked because he danced like such a fool. He, he was... This was a spectacle. I mean, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord. Like I said, he tries to be rebuked. He he teaches a lesson. But the problem that's, that's scary is that in our ignorance, our praises to the Lord... look the same as our sinning against the Lord. That even though we think we know what we're doing right, and even worse, when we feel like what we're doing is right, they look the same. It's hard for us to distinguish because whenever we look back, we like to look back and see a defining moment, a difference, a distinguishing character between me being right and me being wrong. And the only time you see that is when you realize you're wrong. I mean, Israel and all the house was rejoicing before the Lord. They thought it was right, and it looked right. Everything they did looked like they were in the right. But they did not know it until they revealed that it was sin. I mean... David gave this command, go get the ark of the Lord and bring it to me. And then it was placed on a cart. All it would have taken would have been someone to say, hey, hey, read numbers. And Uzzah wouldn't have died. I mean, that it, it cost a man his life for being for feeling right. He wasn't, unfortunately. But it, it did. It cost a man his life because no one knew the word of God. Or they were they turned a blind eye, which was even worse. I mean, it, it'd be nice for me to think that all of the house of Israel was ignorant, because then they wouldn't be held as high as accountable. But that's a pretty bold statement for me to even say that Israel didn't know the word of God. I mean, they would have had this stuff memorized front to back and put most people to shame. It's hard for me to not say they just turned a blind eye. This is horrible. 
I can't help but think of Romans 1 or 2 where it speaks of they surrendered the truth for false images, gave their hearts over to their lusts and deceitful minds. Whenever they surrendered what was true for how they feel. Now I'm going to read Psalms 119, just the first eight verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I can't help but think that with the life that David lived, he would not have been able to treat these psalms and throw so much of his heart into them if David had not done what he did, right and wrong. They all taught him lessons. And when you read the entirety of Psalms 119, I can only hope to have a heart such as that where you disregard what you feel, do what you know is right. Our feelings change from the breezes of the wind, seasons. They come and go. But when you read Psalms 119, you see black and white. You see right and wrong. I read Numbers 4.15 before we started this scripture because that's what Israel should have been doing before most of their sinning occurred. Usually, when Israel does something wrong, there were many things, many bad things happening before that to lead up to this, to lead up to that point. Here we see David praying to God, doing what he says, Winning. We may not see all of Israel, but we definitely see David's heart. And yet, we see David letting this one slip. We see all of Israel's elders letting this one slip. And it cost a man his life. It's amazing how consequences. What is that saying? The road to hell is paved with the best intentions. The church as a whole has been lulled into a sense of as long as my heart 
feels right. As long as my heart is in the Lord, whatever I do, God will make right. That is a scary position to take because what we feel, even though our heart is in the Lord, it still comes down to whether or not what you're doing is right or wrong. We act as if God will take a horrible situation and not give us the consequences. I'm not saying that the Lord can't use any way to better someone. But He uses us many times in our sinning to beat us on the hand with the stick and correct us. He doesn't simply make what we do right. He makes us learn. In Psalms 119, it says, When I learn your ways, I will diligently keep them. I will search you with my whole heart. I will keep your statutes. These are bold statements. These are an action word. It's not, I will learn your ways. Period. There is always a conclusion. I will learn your ways and do them. I will diligently keep your statutes. I will learn your rules and do them. Psalms 119, I I only read eight verses, but every verse in Psalms 119 speaks to the Word of God, speaks about how we are to keep it, how we are to do it. I can't help but think about the Pharisees whenever they were doing all their rights and wrongs and all that stuff. They were always nailed on the heart issues most of the time. That their heart wasn't in to when they were doing what was right. Technically, they were hardly ever wrong for following the rules. It was that their heart wasn't into their following the rules. And we, as man, like to take that to the other extreme and say, as long as our heart's right, I don't care about the rules. Whenever I wanted to do this sermon, I wanted to have three columns. First column was transform. Second column, one column was conform. Third column was confirm. Generally speaking, transformation implies a radical change. Something that paper to rock. Uh, it's a radical change. Conform, I, I read a lot of scriptures whenever it came to the word conform. It's symorphous. It's a change to be something like. But the word entails everything. Nature, character, external appearance. appearance. Symorphous is a one-size-fits-all word. It's an awesome word. And then confirm would be in righteousness. 
how we are supposed to be conforming to the image of the Lord and then confirmed in it in our glorification. And whenever I kept reading Psalms 119, the more I realized that this, from a humanistic point of view, this stinks. Because we naturally want to conform only as much as we're comfortable with. We, I will diligently learn your ways as long as I agree with them. Well, I mean, this has all to do with me, how I feel, how I think. It's only logical to say that. I will diligently do your ways as long as it's profitable, immediately profitable for me. And in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. That one right there covers the comfort, comfortable level. Yes, we are comfortable when we learn and do certain things. We are uncomfortable when there are other things. This verse 8 covers that. This, the second part of verse 8 covers it. Do not utterly forsake me. That covers whenever you don't feel good about doing what was right, when you do what's right and there are consequences. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the God that we hope in. That God keeps His promises. That God answers prayers. If I were to challenge you, it would be to read the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalms 119. And I would suggest reading a version other than mine. Mine uses funny words. I had to have a dictionary and a thesaurus reading the entire thing. But I liked it. It forced me to learn. It made me work harder. Not speaking against it. The end? <laughs> Yeah. That that reminds me.